I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Well, you kill me. A hundred years from now, there won't be one sad fuck to look at any of this. What keeps you going? No, it is there. I just don't think about it. Welcome to Syndicate, a film and TV podcast. From our screens to your watch list, we gather to share and discuss your next favorite. Join us as we want you to spend less time scrolling and more time watching. And now, here's your host, Armand Haddad. Hello and welcome to Syndicates, where we want you to spend less time scrolling and more time watching. I'm your host, Armand Haddad, and welcome to episode 10. This season we are exploring the hidden gems of films or films you probably passed over watching. Joining me in the studio today is Aaron. Aaron, how are you doing today? I am doing I'm doing great, given the situation. Yes. We want to talk about that a little bit. <laughs> yes. Um, so we are currently recording in the middle of a pandemic, um, coronavirus, um, even though this is being released later in the year, given the subject matter of the film that we're going to talk about and recommend to you, it's like strangely fitting. I don't know. It's kind of like a stars aligning type of thing. It's like they knew. Yes. When they set up those 5G towers, they they definitely knew we were going to talk about <laughs> this film yeah i found it funny in the film how people were like you know riding and looting and carrying off as much toilet paper as they could carry and (laughs) themselves with lysol uh it's a strangely prescient film yes (laughs) uh but before we get too into it just want to introduce uh, the co-host for this show, um, Aaron, is an audio engineer for a local radio station here in the Chicago area. And you probably know Aaron from his podcast, WSTR Galactic Public Access, or his Twitch channel, twitch.tv slash sounddaddy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
Um, it's one of those things where it's like, oh, I need to make a Twitch name. Oh, I don't know what it will be. And uh, that was actually a nickname given to me by a fellow student here um, <laughs> at the Moody Bible Institute, if you could believe it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, hey, I mean, you're a sound so, daddy in my uh, I'll, eyes. I'll, I'll leave the origin to that, to the imagination. Well, <laughs> hey, <laughs> hey, it's, it's a it. name, and it's going to be, you know, in my mind forever since I heard heard you even say that i was like okay you are the sound daddy makes sense <laughs> so it's not much but it's mine yes <laughs> and on a more serious note can you tell the listeners a little bit about wstr yes wstr galactic public excess is a all ages family friendly uh star wars podcast we've had going uh for over three years at this point um armand uh, used to be a host on it, and basically we ch- we cover Star Wars news, um, kind of interesting angles on different Star Wars topics that you may not have considered before. We have guests from other podcasts or uh, figures within the Star Wars universe, as it were, and uh, we we just have fun on it. It's it goes out every week, and um, we have a lot of fun. So. If, if if Star Wars and podcasts are your thing, go check it out. It's available wherever fine podcasts are sold. <laughs> yes, it's it's a great show, and uh, they have a lot of Star Wars celebrities being interviewed and joining the discussion on there. So if you like that stuff, be sure to check out WSTR, Galactic Public Access. And now, today we're going to discuss the importance of holding on to hope in a bleak future For this episode's film recommendation is Alfonso Cuarón's 2006 film, The Children of Men. Aaron, what were your initial thoughts of Children of Men? Well, first of all, um, it's kind of crazy to think about that we're 10 episodes into the syndicate. I'm quite excited about it. So thank you for having me along for the ride. And thank you for having me on for this film in particular, because it is a it's quite the favorite of mine uh, when I know I have a lot of favorite movies. Um, but this, this one always has a bit of a special place in my heart. Um, so kind of painting with broad strokes, this movie, it's, it's sci-fi without being sci-fi. It's apocalyptic without being totally apocalyptic. Um, but above all else, it's kind of a meditation on nihilism and kind of the human condition at its worst. Um, but it still, still brings out a few notes of hope. Um, and it's, it does so in a way that it just doesn't draw attention to itself at all. It's not a stylish film. It's not a bunch of glitz and glam and oh, look at our special effects. It's, it's, it's very down to earth, very matter of fact, mm-hmm. almost to a fault. Um, it's as if, people went ahead to the future to 2027 and they were filming a documentary and captured the events there. And they basically just lay it out in front of you. Very brilliant movie. I like it a lot. Yeah. I mean, I agree. It's, it feels, it feels so rooted in reality from uh, the performances from the, the lead actor Clive Owen to even like, the extras in the background. It just feels like a snapshot in reality of 
what things could be and it's a it paints a very realistic picture of how the human race could you know degenerate and fall apart given what happens in the film how did you first hear about this uh movie i think it was through one of the filmmaking subreddits that i follow it might have been cine shots so c-i-n-e shots uh, it's a subreddit where people post either stills or gifs of particularly striking cinematography from different movies. Okay. And uh, this this movie ended up on there, and I saw it several years back. And I, I, I did some more digging because I, I forget exactly which scene was highlighted, but um, I did some digging and this movie in particular, if it had any kind of stylistic flair to it, it would be, it's kind of known famously for a few particular scenes in the movie that um, either are entirely one long take through very complex uh, action scenes, uh, or they're just very cleverly edited to appear as one long take. Either way, it's a, it's a stylistic choice to kind of underscore that documentary feel. And I watched one of those scenes and the, the, how did they do that filmmaking part of my brain lit up and I'm like, Oh wow, this, this movie is something special. And then I sat down and watched it and was just electrified. It felt like they took one of my favorite PC games of all time, Half-Life two stripped out the bit of the more like, fantastic sci-fi elements of it and left all like the grounded kind of human despair dystopia parts of it Mm -hmm. and made it into a feature film. And uh, yeah, I was just blown away by it. Very impressed with the filmmaking of it. Um, And it was a bit of a head scratcher because it was an Oscar winner in several categories. uh, And yet I had never, ever heard of it. And it was, and it's not like it was a weird, like niche, uh, art house like foreign film either it was just it just kind of came and went and i'm like why 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 is why haven't right. more people heard about this movie it's it's like it's 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 just, it's just pure filmmaking art armand <laughs> and more people need to know about it oh yeah it really is <laughs> like so i had the chance to watch this movie when it came out in theaters in 2006 and it really, like, had a lasting impression on me. Like, I would say it was one of the defining films in my, like, film tastes, personally. Like, I think it was, like, the first really? film I saw of a dystopia. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's funny, since you mentioned Half-Life 2, like, it came... So, Half-Life 2 came out around the same time as this movie. So, I could see, like, the parallels and the aesthetic. Yeah, 2004. Yes. And... During that time was the height of, you know, the Iraq war. Like, I feel like that was how people um, coped with uh, the trauma of what was going on in the world. And so they made, you know, a dystopia game, Half-Life 2, where the Combine, the alien forces come and enslave humanity. And society kind of like falls apart in that mm-hmm. way. And with Children of Men, um, before we get too into it, just want to say society falls apart and it's like a realistic uh, gritty 
bleak outlook on the future. So, yeah, I Alfonso yes. Caron like really went out of his way, and you know it's funny because you said like it won Oscars, and yet I never heard of this movie. Like I remember when Oscar season like came about in two thousand six, two thousand seven, when the movie was like okay, now it's time for it to win the laurels of Alfonso's uh, filmmaking, and I remember it being snubbed for. Uh, the categories that it should have been nominated for, like Best Picture, Best Director. I believe it won a mm-hmm. um, like a technical um, Oscar, not like a major one, even though I think it definitely yeah, should have. I misspoke. It was nominated for several Oscars, but didn't win any. Yeah. like I remember a lot of people got mad, like, oh, it's, it's snubbed. Like The Academy doesn't appreciate what's like good filmmaking and... That's why I wanted to end this season with Children of Men because, like, it's the ultimate um, hidden gem. Like, it's truly the diamond in the rough that not a lot of people know about, but, like, once you watch it, it's, like, it leaves such a, like, a, the equivalent of, like, a movie earworm. Like, you can't just, can't stop thinking about it. Like, it's just such a great movie. Yeah. Yeah, it sticks with you. It feels as real as life itself, which I think is the mark of high art. Oh yeah. It, uh, it's a reflection of reality without being too, too boring. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, so let's get into the plot of the movie. So yeah, I think it was Hitchcock who said, um, a movie is like, like life with all the boring bits cut out. Yes. And Children and of Men. That is very much true of this movie. Oh yeah. Definitely. Okay, so before we get into the plot, Aaron, a thing we like to do at Syndicate is called the elevator pitch. Please stand clear of the closing door. Which is if you're recommending a movie, you have sixty seconds to really sell the movie to a friend. So now I'm gonna give you sixty seconds to summarize the plot of the movie while avoiding major spoilers. Are you ready, Aaron? I am. All right. And three, two, one, go. Okay. So I want you to imagine uh, Britain in the far future of 2027. uh, The world has gone to hell. There are disasters and war and famine and all kinds of crises everywhere. Uh, Life's a pretty bleak place. Uh, governments are issuing suicide kits to people, whoever wants them. Um, they're issuing antidepressants in rations, but s- weed is still illegal. You can't have that. Um, so we have our, we have our everyday, <laughs> every man character. Um, and uh, he, he, he narrowly survives uh, just a, a bombing in an everyday cafe. Uh, and, to top it all off, humanity has not had a birth in 18 years. That's right. Everybody is infertile. Nobody can explain it. Nobody knows why. It's just a disaster. But one day, he does a favor for an old flame, and he comes across uh, the first woman who has gotten pregnant in 18 years. He needs to decide if he's going to carry this woman and her baby to safety and what the cost of that will be to him. That's my pitch, Armand. <laughs> Good job, Aaron. Yeah, that pretty much summarizes 
the whole movie, the whole plot of the movie, which is our main character, Theo, who's played by Clive Owen. And he meets this woman who her name is Key. And she pretty much holds the key to the human race, which is dying off. (laughs) So she holds the key to the human race by having the first birth in Mm -hmm. just over 18 years. Yeah. I like that's just imagine that like having no children, nobody to replace us for almost 20 years. Like, the movie wonderfully depicts an aging human race, a dying human race. And I would say it's very realistic in its portrayal of that because it shows what would stand and what would not stand anymore. Like the biggest thing is like the film's aesthetic is very like dirty and grungy, not in like a star Wars way where it's like mm-hmm. a lived in universe, but it's like, People just yeah don't care anymore because what 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 is there to look forward to if there is no future? That's yeah. really what the loss of children represents is like the loss of a hope for the future that things will ever get better, and that is right at the right at the nugget of nihilism. It's like why even bother? Right, like so the world of children of men. Um, so after 18 years, war has engulfed the planet, and the majority of countries all around the world have fallen, except for Britain. Britain stands on as uh, the last bastion of hope for uh, civilization for the human race. If the propaganda is to be believed? Yes. like it, There's a lot of... Um, unreliable narrators throughout the entire movie. Mm-hmm. And the biggest one is the state, the ones in, in control of the media. Like it makes you believe like this is the only place left standing and they're really going either way to maintain that order within the chaos. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's an accurate depiction of how governments would like try to maintain order because like Britain is known for, you know, that that's, that's where America came from. That's where our founding fathers um, originated from. So they came up with the, the theories of like democracy and like leading by the people. And then we see the government of Britain just fall into a, a fascist state. Or it looks reminiscent yeah. of uh, Nazi Germany. Yeah, it's um, there, there's a bitter taste of irony throughout much of the movie because, of course, England was the birthplace of the Magna Carta, which is one of the most important government documents in history, where it limits the powers of government and it's instead advocates for the right of the individual within a, within a government. And so um, in the movie, Britain has become very isolationist and very nationalistic and fascist where uh, it opens up with 
this kind of news broadcast declaring that you know the borders are closed um they are no longer allowing refugees in um and and there, there's actually a slang term a derogatory term for refugees in the movie uh called fujis you know if you are if you are a fuji you are not a, a true british citizen um you are basically an outcast uh illegal and need to be deported and we'll get to that later but it's a very plausible look at what a government would do in crisis it's like okay all these countries they are they are burning they are wrecked by famine um nobody's being born to replace all the people that are dying uh screw all you guys screw the eu um <laughs> we're just going to you know close up our borders and just take care of our own so yeah it's highly plausible as far as what a government would do in a situation like that Right. Because it comes down to like survival. It's like, like say the information is to be believed and they are the final country to be left standing. Like all of the world's going to be flooding into their gates and they have to unfortunately close the door if they want to, you know, stay afloat. They can't take care of everybody. So yeah, yeah. it's kind of like you, you go back to the basics of, humanity of like walls and being you know autonomous and isolationist so yeah, yeah i agree and with you on there they, they they touch on that um with they have advertisements for this particular drug called quietus that the government issues and they don't come out right out and say it but it is essentially a suicide kit where if you choose to do so um, to kind of voluntarily commit suicide through this government approved method. Um, your next of kin will be paid 2000 pounds. And that is essentially a clever way of saying, you know, the resources of the government are pushed, uh, to such a, a degree that anybody, if we can convince somebody to basically just walk off the earth so that we have one less mouth to feed. We are willing to pay for that, which is really truly nightmarish yeah. if you think about it. Um, but they just present it very matter of factly in the movie. Um, and I do want to say this is one of the strengths of this particular movie is that there's pretty much zero exposition given. We don't have like, mm-hmm an information dump from a character like this is how things are and things are really bad. And it's all given either just told visually through like extras in the background or through news broadcasts that happen to be going on um, just in the background. Like we don't just like cut to like straight news coverage, but it's just, it's a, it's a part of the atmosphere. It's part, a part of the environment and it's so refreshing because it treats the audience as like an intelligent human being who can piece things together. Oh yeah. Um, and it doesn't rely on like a protagonist who has, you know, been in a coma for the last 10 years and whoa, what's this world? Like things are wacky. <laughs> then you need to have somebody explain it to you. And it's like, that's one strategy for, explaining the rules of like a new sci-fi universe. Um, And that's essentially what like Luke is in a new hope where uh, there's a big 
part of the galaxy that he's not explored and he comes under the wing the comes under the wing of a mentor in Obi-Wan and in a kind of similar way he uh becomes entwined with Han Solo and he has to learn like oh the empire like they're dangerous and uh you know never been to uh, Moss Eisley before that's dangerous got to learn about that and the the galaxy is a big and wild and dangerous place. There's, there's, there's places for that that works in a fantasy setting, but not in a movie like this, where it's very grounded and it's very real. And having somebody explain everything to to a, another character who should have lived through this and should already know and does already know that would come across as really stupid. And this this director <laughs> he avoids that entirely, which is like. Thank you. Thank God that there's a movie that treats its audience like intelligent people. And it just comes across as a very natural storytelling style. And it serves the purpose of this movie very well. Oh, yeah. I agree with you. Because, like, so many movies now, like, really don't take into account, like, the person watching this movie is consuming the media and understanding exactly what's happening like a lot of movies are like okay let's dumb it down okay we need a line of exposition here or there to remind the audience what's going on who these characters are it's kind of like with this film children of men you're just dropped into the shoes of just a a regular guy uh theo uh clive owen's character you're Mm -hmm. just dropped into his life um the only time we really get like an information quote an information dump is like right in the beginning of the movie, which sets the tone, which is a news broadcast saying like, um, the youngest human alive was just killed. He was 18 years, four months, 27 days or whatever. And that's the only time yes. we really get like an info dump. The rest of it's baby Diego. either. Yes. Baby Diego. Who was a celebrity just for being the youngest human on the planet. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like like you said, like Alfonso, uh, very very strategically, like provides all the information the viewer needs through uh, characters around Theo, uh, Theo's interaction with people, um, the world itself, like the background of like headlines uh, that he just walks by or advertisements, like. We learn about the world by going along in the journey with him instead of people telling the viewer, okay, now, as you know, 18 years ago, uh, the world became infertile. And because of that, Theo, as you know, (laughs) the human project, which is a project that (laughs) it's like, no, he's just going on with his day and he just stumbles upon uh, a miracle. in the second act of the movie, which is Key's character. And then he has a choice of whether to embark on that adventure to help her or to refuse it and live out his uh, bleak existence in London. Yes. So, well, he initially doesn't have a choice. So he's going along on his everyday life. Um, you know, he stops for coffee, uh, add some whiskey into it because why not when you're in this kind of world um, narrowly survives a bombing 
But, you know, there's nothing particularly special about him. But one day when he's going home from work, he is abducted by this kind of radical activist uh, organization called the Fishes. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. It's not entirely, maybe I missed it, but it's not entirely clear what they're after, except they're kind of like a protest to the current government in, in place. And um, I believe it was through some of the dialogue of the characters, they wanted immigration rights, yes. equal immigration rights. Yeah. Yes. So um, through this kidnapping, he ends up uh, in contact with an old flame of his, a political activist. Um by the name of Julian. Um, totally not Julianne Moore, um, but Julian. <laughs> and uh, yeah, she has kidnapped him because he is the only person that she trusts with this. Um, she asks him to get some transit papers for somebody that they need to get uh, into England or at least across the border. Uh, mm-hmm. And for this, he will receive 5,000 pounds. And he he is in need of money, but he tries to downplay it. And he's like, you know what? I don't want to get involved with this. Um, they're like, cool. Uh, reach out to us if you change your mind. And of course, he does end up changing his mind and getting into it. But little does he know that uh, this person that they need transferred uh, is not just an ordinary person um, with importance to the organization. It is the first lady in 18 years who has gotten pregnant. So at this point, um, they, they narrowly survive an attack by at first. We don't know. It seems like either just a bunch of bandits or kind of displaced, desperate refugees while they're driving along the road. Um, and Julian ends up, uh, being killed in the attack. And so, uh, the fishes, they elect a, a new leader, um, Lucas, I believe his name is. And, uh, and key, the, the, the pregnant woman, uh, she says, uh, Julian said not to trust anybody except you, Theo. And so wherever you go, I will go with you. And mm-hmm. there's this debate that arises between, you know, do we keep her hidden and secret and safe? We're trying to get her to um, the the human society, the human the project, human project. The, the human project, which is kind of this brain trust of people who have, were put together by various governments to try to solve this fertility problem. Uh, they they couldn't come up with a solution, so they've kind of been you know cast aside by various uh, governmental bodies. But they're trying to get this person to them in the hopes that they can figure out why she was able to get pregnant and uh, hopefully work on some sort of cure. She basically getting them to her is the goal of getting her to them is the goal of the movie. And that's kind of their best hope for humanity for now. And so there's this debate that rises within the fishes. Uh, Do we continue with that plan um, given the danger that we're in or do we we kind of wait a few months, have her deliver the baby here and then deliver them both to the human project. Uh, and it's kind of Theo's vote to say she needs medical attention, no matter who it is, 
even if it's the government, we need to go public with this. And of course, mm-hmm. as it's revealed later, the fishes feel differently. Yeah. Like the bit, one of the biggest themes of the film is um, their portrayal of xenophobia and immigration. Yes. Which I think, you know, it's funny because the film's almost 15 years old. And yet the same issues that they're dealing with in this fictional, you know, near future dystopia is exactly what we're dealing with now in society with mm-hmm. all these, um, you know, migrant um, crises happening all around the world, and especially now being exacerbated with uh, COVID-19. Yeah. Um, it's just the, their main issue is. Like, if they go public with Key's pregnancy, um, she's not a British citizen. And up until that point, Britain was very uh, anti-immigrants, like Britain for for the British. And by having a a refugee, a Fuji, um, be the first mother in the last 18 years, it kind of um, nullifies their entire ideology. They, be, they will yeah. become hypocrites. It's like, oh, even though we are demonizing all of these immigrants, never mind, they're people too. Mm. And that poses a problem for them. Yeah, it it makes makes Britain look bad by having kind of the savior of humanity come from the Fugees, these people they've demonized for so long. And I think Alfonso Cuaron even hammered it um, even further because uh, Britain... Like historically, is a you know it's a very Anglo white um, country, and the first person to have the baby in the in their world is a is, is an African woman. Yes, and so I think you know, given the history of uh, you know Western uh, colonialism, uh, you know the separating and the carving of uh, Africa, spearheaded by uh, the British Empire, I think it's kind of ironic that the savior of humanity the savior of britain would not come from uh, the british but actually from you know an immigrant uh, a person that has no ties to uh, the land of britain yeah there's a there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of christ the messiah imagery in this movie oh yeah do we do we want to want to unpack that a little bit absolutely yeah okay so throughout the film um a key character in Theo's life. So earlier we, we were saying like uh, he was fake kidnapped by this radical organization, the fishes spearheaded by their leader, Julian, who was Theo's ex-wife. Um, she tells him, go to your brother. Your brother has sway with the government. Like he can help you get the transit papers for key. And he reluctantly says, okay, I'll go to my brother. So, he goes to his brother, who is, in all intents and purposes, an aristocrat in British society. Mm-hmm. And he is a very prominent person for the British uh, government because he has his arc of the arts. Yes. So he is pretty much the man with the plan to save all the fine arts of human history. Yes. So... Uh, Theo walks into um, his vault, if you will, and he sees a giant uh, statue of David sculpted by Michelangelo. And he meets his brother, 
and then they have a casual dinner. And in the background of the dinner is a, a famous Picasso painting that depicts, um, I believe it's the dictator of Spain, hmm. uh, Franco. And it shows a scene of war and martyrism, which is a prevalent theme throughout the film because, like you said earlier, uh, the Christ imagery, it's funny because when he met his brother, he said, like, I saved David, but I couldn't save, um, what was that piece? The Pieta. Yes. He said, ah, the Pieta was smashed to bits. You know, it was too late by the time I got there. Yes, but he could save David. And David has a chunk mm-hmm. of his leg missing. It's a, yeah. it's a nice little bit of world building right there. Yeah, very subtle. Doesn't hit you over the head with it. It's like, okay, like the world is in turmoil and even great works of art are um, under threats. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he couldn't save the Piazza, which is um, uh, Mary holding uh, the body of Christ after his crucifixion. Yes. And that's symbolism of of the mother holding the dead son is a, is a theme that will reverberate throughout the entire film. Mm-hmm. Would you like to unpack that? The Pieta itself, the idea of it is that it's this mother kind of contemplating the sacrifice that she has given to the world and her son. And it's, it's the dilemma that psychologically, at least kind of every mother has to go through when they decide to say, yes, I'm going to try to have a kid um, and bring a son or daughter into the world. It's like, no matter how good things are, when you bring a child into the world, they're going to experience so much hurt and pain and disappointment and even cruelty. You have to weigh in your mind, you know, is it worth bringing a child into this kind of world as messed up as it is? Right. And that might be the central question of the movie. Like, as as messed up as this world is, is it worth it even bringing a child into this? And, you know, if people decide, you know, I'm going to be child free or I don't want to bring a child into this world, like people have their reasons, but to, to say yes to that is a form of courage. And that's what the, the Pieta uh, represents is like Mary holding the, the broken and destroyed body of her son, Christ in the world is like, this is supposed to be the savior of mankind, uh, the son of God. And yet the world like tore him apart. And so that's one of the main themes of the movie is like with this, with this key character and her um, bringing when ends up to be her daughter into the world is like, is it even worth it at this point, given how how much people distrust each other and uh, and just tear each other apart? Like, is it worth it? And I would venture to say the movie says yes, according to a scene which we will get to later. I don't want to fully get into that yet, but um, that <laughs> is one of the central questions that the movie offers 
as it's kind of a meditation on nihilism, it's like, is it even worth it to keep trying as a human race? Right. Like, that's the central theme of the whole movie. And it's personified, I would say, by uh, Theo's character, because, like, he's a very nihilistic person. Like, he pretty much checked out of society. He's just doing his daily routine Mm -hmm. before he's abducted by the fishes. And even after being abducted, he's still reluctant. He doesn't want to do this. He doesn't want to help this person until he realizes that this person's pregnant. Yes. And it's like, okay, this is bigger than myself. Um, But but it's it's a slow realization to get to that point of him finding that hope within a hopeless situation. He's kind of like Jonah. He's kind of like Jonah. He had to be swallowed by a fish for three days before he's like, all right, right I, will, I will go ahead and, you know, give the word of God to these people, even though they hate my guts, even though I will not be welcome there. I will do it because it's the right thing to do. That's what Theo has to do. He's like, you know what? I'm going to risk my own life to save this woman and her baby because it's the right thing to do, even though there are plenty of people who want to kill us for it. Yeah, he takes it upon himself because like, the easier solution is to just run away, refuse. Hey, I don't want to do this. But he's like, you know what? I got to do it. Just like Jonah. like He initially ran away. He refused the call. Um, and he had to dive into the underworld to realize the importance of his mission. And just like with Theo, like he dives deep into the underworld and he sees himself because Theo is a relatively well-off guy. He works for, I think, uh, the government to some degree, like a ministry of something. He's a, a bureaucrat, I guess. Yeah. So he has like a pretty comfortable life and he forgoes all of that to help this woman give birth to her kid. Yeah. And if I can, if I can comment on that a little bit, um, I know Mm -hmm. we're we're going all over the place here, but early in the, early in the movie, it's revealed that the youngest person on earth who has achieved a kind of celebrity status, um, baby Diego, who is 18 years and change um, ends up. There's a person who asked for his audio for his autograph. Um, Diego spat on him as kind of like, you know, screw you and ends up getting Mm -hmm. stabbed to death. And this is basically the equivalent of a, of like celebrity news in this, in this universe. Um, and it's it's kind of like a it, it's kind of like a huge middle finger to um, our our current like uh, celebrity culture insofar as like a death watch where it's like um, particularly I think it was 2016 or 2017 where there was a ton of celebrity deaths and the kind of fascination with that and no oh, this was before their time and mm-hmm. everything. And the whole entire concept of celebrity is kind of cast aside in this movie's universe, where instead it is uh, 
the youngest person in the world. And like they have people ranked down to the minute of when they were born. And so the title of youngest person goes to the next youngest person. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And people are kind of spellbound by the the news broadcast of this and they're like having to take off of work early and just like unable to function. And it's, it's, it's kind of like a cutting satire to the way some people respond uh, to uh, celebrity culture in our modern day where it's like, we're affected by these people's lives in a way that's absolutely devastating when really, at least in our modern day, the consequences of that are kind of minimal, but we pretend that they're as, <laughs> as kind of life changing as the youngest person in the world as a symbol of, you know, our future uh, has suddenly been killed. Um, it's a, it's a pretty, pretty clever satire, I think. Yeah. I didn't even think of it that way, but like, you're totally right. Like it's such a subtle way of like satirizing like the whole celebrity culture because like it's almost like the great equalizer like mm-hmm. yeah you have like famous people but we all die and in this world it's like uh, it doesn't matter what you do who you are what matters is how young you are like yeah that's such an interesting concept to to think about like that's how you're famous. Like nothing, nothing that you did, none of your merits, just when you were born. Yeah. Just by virtue of complete accident. Um, and, uh, and Theo even comments on this when he's talking about it with his friend Jasper later. Um, they're like, you know, what, what'd you think about baby Diego dying? He's like, Oh, baby Diego. Like what a joke. He was a wanker. <laughs> like he was a, he was a complete <laughs> asshole to people. Um, but you know, it's, it's not who he was, but what he represented and what he represented was, uh, the kind of youngest person on earth, like people calling him baby Diego, even though he's like over 18, it's like, well, that's what humanity has to hold on to. And it's kind of pathetic. And yeah, not to try to draw too many parallels, but in our modern day, I find it pretty hilarious that in this, in the middle of this uh, COVID-19 pandemic, um, how unimportant and trivial celebrities have become where oh, yeah. they, they try to do these things where it's like, 
And it's so hard to stay in this quarantine. And they're in the middle of their, like, you know, 20,000 square foot mansion. And it's like, shut up. (laughs) They seem like even more detached from reality now and as more unimportant as could possibly be. And it's like, yeah, in that, that, that kind of desire for celebrity and looking to heroes that's a that's a part of the human condition that won't go away even in the middle of just utter despair (laughs) we're still gonna latch on to that even if it's by a mere accident of your birth i i 100 percent agree with you on that like uh, during the whole covid19 thing like you get to see celebrities for who they really are like Mm -hmm. i'm all for like you know, watching actors or actresses um, do their thing on on the screen or on the stage because, like, you see, like, their craft and their, you know, performance. Yeah. I can really care less about them as a person, but, like, celebrity culture, especially here in America, all we care about is, like, who they are, what they're doing, what they're wearing. And with the whole pandemic thing and, and having them just... uh be at home on their phones, not doing anything. Like it really shows who they are as people. And they're either one dull, they're boring, mm-hmm. or like you said, they're detached from reality. Like they don't really understand the severity of the situation and they're not really empathetic towards it. Now there are like, like good hearted people that are celebrities out there. I'm not going to paint them all with a broad brush, but Mm -hmm. a lot of them are, you know, uh, revealed themselves, showed their hands uh, during this whole pandemic. Yeah. So switching gears. So we talked about uh, Theo at length. Uh, We talked about Key. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about Jasper because there is a very important theme um, with his character and his wife that I would like to talk about briefly. Um, what do you think of Jasper? Yeah. So he's played by Michael Caine. Um, he's a, a friend of Theo's uncle. Not sure. Yes. Um, he's, he's a friend. Okay. Uh, very much comes across as an uncle down to the pull my finger gag. Um, but you know, he, he, he lives a relatively carefree existence compared to Theo. Um, he lives in this house in the middle of the woods with a hidden entrance. Um, you know, he grows weed there, even though it's illegal. Um, and it, it actually buys them opportunities later as he's able to bribe like a border crossing guard. Um, who he regularly uh, deals pot to. But um, yeah, he's very much this kind of like John Lennon kind of hippy dippy guy. And um, the, the kind of role that he plays in the movie is like um, his, his, his wife, by the way, has suffered some kind of uh, debilitating brain injury or brain condition that, um, she's not able to move or speak. And so he is entirely caring for her. Um, and 
the way he kind of approaches it is very much carefree kind of living in the moment um, kind of acceptance of reality as it is. And uh, he doesn't bother himself with getting involved with activist groups or politics of any kind. Uh, He's very much like a, like a, like a Zen Buddhist might be where it's, just acceptance of things as they are in the current moment. And to me, that kind of represents one of the potential answers for nihilism. And he's kind of the other coin, uh, other side of the coin that the art curator is on the other side of the art curator. Um, who I believe is the cousin of Theo, something like that, uh, who ends up providing the transit papers um, in the... Yeah, his brother. Yeah. In the the arc of art, uh, who's he's mm-hmm. the curator of it. He's preserving all these priceless art artifacts um, for history, given just how in despair the world is. Theo at one point asks him, like, why would you do all of this in a hundred years? Like, nobody's going to even care because we'll all be dead. And the art curator, he's just like, I just don't think about it. And in, in a lot of ways, it represents denial of the problem of nihilism where the problem of nihilism is asking like what ultimately matters. Um, You know, if, if we're all going to die and in, a certain length of time, nothing's going to matter anyway, or nothing's going to survive after a certain amount of time. Why even bother? Uh, the art curator, he, his kind of answer is denial where it's like, you know what? I'm not even going to think about it. This just makes sense for me right now. And so this is what I'm going to do, even if there's no kind of ultimate purpose or meaning to it. And uh, Jasper, Michael Caine's character, he represents like kind of the flip side of that. Where it's like, yes, I know nothing ultimately matters, um, but I'm just going to choose to accept it and instead just going to take it day by day, moment by moment, and kind of live in the now, in the present. Um, And Theo kind of has to straddle these two worlds, if that makes sense. It totally does. Yeah, Theo is kind of like the everyday man, like... The, the character that the viewer can put themselves into and they're kind of seen through the lenses of both these ideologies because like they're both, they both have their own truths to it. I wouldn't say they have the absolute truth to it. Like is like the nihilistic life is meaningless thing could be. And then Jasper is complete opposite of that. Like, Oh, like there's so much, like there's things bigger than you and you know, that you have to do things that are bigger than yourself. Like that's totally true too. And so Theo kind of has to, and the viewer has to decipher like, okay, like where's the middle ground and where, where's the actual truth lie? Yeah. That's one of the central questions of the movie is like, if the entire world is shit, and your experience of it is just nothing but slugging through shit. Um, why wouldn't you just take some quietus and, you know, painlessly 
step out of existence. Um, like what, what, what makes life worth living? And Theo kind of finds his answer in Key and her child in this kind of hope for the future where he's like, you know, no matter what it costs me, it's going to be worthwhile and meaningful to give of myself to make sure that we at least have a bit of a future, no matter how uncertain it is. Right. Yeah. Like throughout the entire movie, a big thing I would say is sacrifice. Like every single character that Theo meets in some way, shape or form does a sacrificial act to propel that sense of hope forward. Yeah. You have uh, Julian, Jasper, um, uh, the fishes, like they're all like trying to get key to the certain points to help the human race, like to do something bigger than themselves. And Theo begins the movie as a pretty nihilistic, hopeless character. And then by the end of the movie has this beautiful arc where he finds purpose in his life and hope for the future through key. Yeah. And there's kind of foils to Theo as he goes along on his journey. Like um, Miriam, she's this uh, kind of former midwife um, character who she was a nurse at the time when, when people were starting to not be able to have children anymore. Like, she would have multiple, multiple miscarriages per week. And then all of a sudden, at a certain point in her schedule of upcoming appointments, there are just no appointments being made. And so she got to kind of witness the end of things and then the beginning of a new era with uh, somebody getting pregnant again. And she ends up sacrificing herself at a refugee camp checkpoint um, in order to make sure that Theo and Key are able to continue on. And so in many ways, Theo kind of has a strong sense of self-preservation in making sure that he gets through things. But Miriam is an example of somebody who will trust in Key um, kind of sight unseen uh, to the point of sacrificing herself um, to making sure that she's safe. And that is certainly not something that Theo has had to contend with up until this point. And so she kind of sets the example for him going forward that pays off later in the movie. Absolutely. Going with the theme of sacrifice, because you mentioned earlier um, the Christ imagery. Yes. And then also uh, we just mentioned all the characters throughout the entire film sacrificing uh, themselves for this purpose. Since we said like the film doesn't really hit you over the head with exposition, there is one scene where it's more of a character defining moment for Theo. Uh, it's, it's a very somber, quiet moment uh, with Jasper and uh, Key and Miriam, um, where Theo is kind of like in the background listening in on their conversation. And they talked a little bit about uh, Theo and Julian's relationship and how um, they met at a 
anti-establishment protests and they fell in love and they had a child together and the child was uh, taken away because of the flu pandemic of 2008. Mm -hmm. And Jasper uses that story of Theo's life as like, you know, you have faith by faith, like Julian and Theo met like because of their convictions, what they believed in. And then by chance, uh, their son was born. And then by chance, their son was taken away because of a deadly virus. So the sense of loss that Theo experienced when he was younger, like I would say is reminiscent of, you know, Mary and Christ uh, with the statue, with the paintings, uh, depicted throughout the film of like, it's like, what's the point of raising a kid or bringing life into this meaningless world if that's ultimately the outcome? Like you were mentioning earlier. In the scene, Jasper says, everything is a mythical cosmic battle between faith and chance. And that's central to the core theme of the movie, nihilism where we as a human race can't help but to have hope and to have faith that things are going to get better or that things are going to change in a way that will kind of relieve our suffering um and in many ways that lines up with the biblical theme of uh kind of faith in the second coming of christ and so it's something that we can't really avoid, but then we're met on the other side by chance where these kinds of tragic events happen that you can't really account for and you can't really even make sense of. I'm not sure if I've shared on the podcast before, but for my own personal life, uh, one of my sisters ended up murdered by her husband in, in a tragic turn of events. And that's something I myself have had to make sense of is like, it's not like I could pat myself on the back with a platitude that she like gave her life for something meaningful and that something good came out of her death. Um, Really nothing is good. Nothing good has come out of her death. It's just been this kind of tragedy that still you can't really make a lot of sense of. And there's not really any, clean answers for um and i've had to weigh like can i still put my faith in a god who has the world under his control and has a has a good outcome for all things and wants the best for life and in its existence or is it really more chance rather than faith where you know despite my best efforts to have a good connection with her and, and, and to hope for the best for their relationship. Like it was still kind of dashed upon the rocks. Um, that's a very, very tough question to kind of answer for anybody. And that's what the, that's what the movie tries to ask in this predicament where you have a world where people are not giving birth to people. And as, as just, dreadful and depressing and painful a world as it is 
the question that the mother has to ask is, is it still worth it to bring a child into this? Am I willing to take that step of faith to say, yes, I'm going to place my hope for the future of the race of mankind into this child who the world might very well tear apart. And for when it, when it came to Theo and Julian with their son, Dylan, they did have that faith in each other and in their son um, that things would go well. And then chance kind of sprung up and took their son away from them and it ruined Theo. It really did. Um, but as we'll see later in the film, he decides that at least this time, um, the birth of Key's daughter is a miraculous thing. And it's, it's worth taking that step of faith in. It's worth taking that risk. Yeah. And, uh, first and foremost, I want to say thank you so much, Aaron, for, um, sharing that with me, um, it's it's never easy to lose a loved one. It's never easy to to lose such a close family member, especially in a traumatic, horrific way. Yeah. Um but yeah, like it's definitely a conversation that's been happening since the dawn of time. It's like, is it is it truly is our world driven by faith or you know destiny or is it driven by chances or you know free will if you will um yeah i like to think personally i like to think that it's a little bit of both i think there is a a a grand picture to things but i think a lot of it has to do with um free will um, for those that subscribe to um, the biblical teachings of the Bible, um, I think it's definitely in line with with that. It's like, yes, like the world was created by God and everything is made by God and we're in uh, God's image. But ultimately, like because of the events that transpired in the Garden of Eden, like our world has fallen short of the perfection that was the original intent. And because the reasons why it fell in the first place is because God didn't create man to be perfect. He didn't create pretty much automatons or robots. He created man with all the flaws because he wanted genuine worship and genuine obedience. But he gave us that freedom. And in that freedom... We can do things that aren't what he intended. And we have to live with the consequences of that freedom. And that can either be good things or bad things. And I don't think the bad things in life take away anything from the good things in life. Like, I wish I got to know your sister, but... I won't, but you experienced her life in ways that other people can't. And you cherish those moments because they're so important to you. And because of that, like, that's such a great thing. But 
you know, losing her doesn't take away from those great things. Yeah. Conversely, like the great things and the great joys in life don't diminish or uh, erase the the hardships of life. Like it's kind of like like a pile of things. It's like these are the good and then here's here's the bad. It's just you have to take it all together and you have to sort it in your own way. Yeah. And I keep thinking back to why there is art in this, in this story. Um, like what's the point of the, of the art curator? Um, and there's not a lot of music in this movie, but in particular, there's a track by, um, by King Crimson, which is one of my favorite bands, um, in the court of the Crimson King. Um, mm-hmm. and I think it has to do that with the fact that you don't get, you don't get beauty in this world without, without risking tragedy. And it's almost like way too deep an idea for me to even like unpack, but, there's some truth to it. I feel it. Um, and that's exemplified late in the film when Theo is escorting key, um, throughout, uh, basically this border town, um, where these refugee insurgents end up, um, involved in a firefight with these kind of, kind of government troops. And, um, mm-hmm. it's like a shot that's over like seven minutes long. And, there's a, there's this moment where um, Theo and Keith are trying to protect this baby and get through it. And um, then it's revealed that she's actually carrying a baby and uh, they're, they're, they're kind of holed up with the insurgents and they're just so spellbound that they s- stop shooting. And then the government agents uh, show up and they too notice this baby and they too are just like stricken dumb by this miracle in front of them and Theo and key are able to kind of pass through most of the battle, just unscathed as everybody's just kind of looking on in awe. Like they can't even believe that this has actually happened. Right. And then the battle resumes, but you know, it was, it was all worth it for that one moment where everybody kind of forgot themselves and who they were and who they were fighting against. And it was just all to take in this, kind of miracle of life um, that was right there before them. And right. it's, it's moments like that, that make everything worth it in a really weird and deep way that I can't really explain. Yeah. It's such a striking moment in the film because it feels like everything led up to that moment. It's kind of like at the apex of um, both factions. It's kind of like, you have the fishes and they're trying to incite an uprising and to propel like the child forward as like the banner for this new movement for Mm -hmm. like equal rights for everybody. And then you have the authoritarian rule of um, the government and they're trying to suppress and to maintain order. And then they see the baby and everything just stops. It's kind of like a spiritual moment. 
similar to like, like if uh, Christ were to come back, like in the middle of a war, it's like everyone would lay down their arms like, oh, is this actually happening right now? Yeah. Like it'd be quite a sight to see. It would. And that moment of solitude is like so beautiful. It's kind of like the, the calm within the storm. Yeah, very much. That's kind of the moment that this movie transcended for me where it became a really good movie about a very cool premise to this is touching on something deeper than, you know, maybe anything that I can really explain. Yeah. Emotions have a funny way of doing that where it's like you watch something or you read something and it like triggers this wave of emotions that it makes you feel a certain way, but like to articulate it and to like say what it is, like it's, it's a whole nother challenge in of itself. And like the movie from start to finish, like takes you on a ride and it makes you feel things and you're, you're left like by, by the time the movie ends, it's like, wow, you're just speechless of what you just saw in a good way. So Armand, I did some a little bit of research before the beginning of this episode. Um, I wanted to see, you know, what were the biggest movies in 2006? Like, uh, surely this people would have turned out to see this 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 great piece of art in our in our theaters. <laughs> um, number one, Pirates of the Caribbean: Dead Man's Chest. Oh yeah, gross grossed uh, four hundred twenty three million dollars in two thousand six. Number two, Cars, two hundred forty four million. Uh, number three, X Men: The Last Stand. Oh yeah, two hundred thirty four million gross. <laughs> Uh, you wanna you wanna know what number Children of Men was? Um, I would say number fifty-seven. Close, two hundred and fifty-five. Oh, oh my god! Made one point three million <laughs> in the box office. One point three million. One point three million. No way. Domestic. I think worldwide it made like 35 million something like that it may have been okay. just been you know what it released christmas day 2006 it may have just been like the last few days of 2006 but uh regardless it did not make much money um opening weekend five hundred thousand dollars cost 76 million it grossed i think in the u.s 35 million and worldwide mm-hmm. 70 million. So if you're a bean counter at the at the studios, you would probably consider this a flop. And that's Jeez. a shame because this uh this movie would achieve the status of high art in my opinion. Yeah, I mean that's usually the case with like films that are not for the mainstream. Like not to like seem like a like oh like i'm so pretentious but like this movie is such a smart film and like we were saying earlier it doesn't take for granted your intelligence when watching it like it's a very thought-provoking movie and it definitely has 
a message it wants to convey. And it's not a very conventional film. Like, yeah, Afonso Curran, like, he's coming off the heels of Prisoner of Azkaban, and he makes this, like, art house war movie that has, like, these themes that are bigger than itself. And I can see why it doesn't resonate with, like, a general um, movie-going population that wants to see, like, an action movie like Pirates of the Caribbean. Yeah, just Johnny Depp stumbling around, you know. That's fun. That's safe. That'll <laughs> that'll keep your kids occupied for a couple hours. But right. this is the kind of movie that sticks with you long after the credits roll. And uh, speaking of credits, like, when the credits roll, like, you definitely understand what the movie i mean it's pretty ambiguous but it's kind of clear at the same time it's like this is how the story ends and it's masterfully bookend with like the title of the movie because the movie starts abruptly and then ends abruptly but you know exactly what the movie's about like you don't feel like out of place it's like that was the start and then that was the end like, yeah, there's no other way to get around that. It's a very simple story told masterfully well in a world that feels mm-hmm. real. And it's its style is almost no style at all in that it it trusts you to piece things together by presenting the world as it is um, without blemish without hiding anything without smoothing anything over without spoon feeding it to you um it just shows it as it is and it's like it it trusts that you're smart enough to take care of the rest and you know for that for that i salute it it's just so well told that usually the default way that i'll watch movies is kind of like from a production mindset like oh i wonder how they did that or you know, this is probably how they, how they did it or how I might've done it. Um, like thinking about like the construction of the movie, but this yeah. movie engrossed me so much that I hardly thought about it at all. Um, from that angle until like my second or third viewing. Um, it, it just does such an incredible job of building a world that you believe it to be real and believe it to be a plausible future. And so for that reason, all the more, it sucks you in and gets you thinking about the nature of life itself. So it really, it plays to its strengths in order to get you invested in the theme, which I think is brilliant. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Like the movie pretty much breaks the illusion of like, oh, this is a movie. Like it feels like, like we said earlier, (laughs) Like a documentary from the future. Yeah. Like the actors seem real. The setting seems real. The premise is realistic. Like it's such a amazing piece of cinema that I think everyone needs to experience. Like whether people like it or not, I think it's almost irrelevant because like of the conversation pieces that, is ignited because of watching this movie. Like it's such a striking film from like cinematography standpoint to 
the the story and then the themes it conveys. Like it's a fantastic movie. Absolutely. Highly recommend. Um you're 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 not gonna have a smile on your face when you're done with it. It's it's bleak, it's depressing. Um but it's also it does a lot to hide its like art house DNA. So it's not going to be alienating. It's going to be very inviting and engaging as kind of a, a, uh, a, a piece of the human condition that everybody can relate to. So um, there's not like a super complicated, weird, artsy, fartsy story that's going to set you off. Um, it's something you have to experience for yourself very much. But there's not really a lot of obstacles between you and the movie. It's just pretty much as raw and real as it gets. Yeah. Really is. So, Aaron, what would be your one reason why someone should check out Children of Men? My one reason why you should watch Children of Men is that it asks the very questions that we need to be asking ourselves as a human race if we want to survive and thrive in the future. And there's no easy way to solve that problem or easy way to think about that, those kinds of questions. Um, but at least we get to do so from the safety and comfort of our own homes, watching a movie instead of, having to live it out and decide for real with very real consequences. And this movie kind of gives you the hope that if we have enough people thinking about this, we can avoid a lot of pain and suffering in answering those questions. That was beautifully said, Aaron. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and for me, I'm not even going to touch what you just said. So I'm going to say my one reason is the cinematography, which we didn't really discuss at length. Um, cinematography is unbelievable. Like, to be honest, I don't even know how the director even did it. Like <laughs> this movie is very famous for it's multiple long shots. Mm -hmm. There's two sequences in particular, one in the second act that leads into the next act, which has to do with like a car chase. Yeah. And then the second one is uh, during the firefight between um, the insurgents and then the military. And then Theo's caught in between it. Like those two sequences are unbelievable. Yeah. And like you said earlier, like one of them's like seven minutes long, one take, no cuts, like, the choreography alone to pull that off is like, I can't even comprehend Yeah, that. It's just absolutely mind boggling. It is. And at the same time, it's a cinematography that doesn't draw attention to itself. It's very understated. And they really go for that documentary style where you are, Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The director refuses to allow the cinematography to come between you occupying the same space as the story. And the story is very much predicated on the world that it's in. So he needs to create a believable world that you can occupy with the character. And it does that flawlessly, in my opinion. Like compare this to um, one of the opening scenes in Baby Driver. If you've seen that movie. I have. It, there's another long shot where it's very much draws attention to itself. It's um, kind of... Uh, living out the musical trope of the music of the movie having an effect on the world. And so like lyrics from the song will appear as graffiti in the background. Um, and everybody moves in rhythm and time to the music. And that's perfect for that movie. It's delightful. It is enjoyable. Um, but it very much draws attention to the fact that, Hey, I am the long uninterrupted take. I am choreographed and synchronized to the music. And that's fine. It works for that movie. <laughs> you would not get away with that in a movie like this. <laughs> and so the, so this movie, it very much does the same thing, but in a way that keeps the attention and focus on the world and the characters and the story. And instead of any kind of kind of beauty in the cinematography, if that makes sense. It does make sense. Like you said, like the, the director doesn't get in the way with uh, being flashy. Like, he has his own pizzazz in, like, his expertise with the camera, but mm-hmm. it's not stylistic. It's it's very, you know, muted, down-to-earth, like, very, like, a matter-of-fact about it, which is, yeah, I think, very effective for this movie. It is. I would agree. So, everybody... Check out Children of Men. Um, it's a fantastic movie. Um, but go in prepared because this movie does not pull its punches. Like it's it's a very tough movie, but you'll leave with so many notions about life. Like it's it's a fantastic journey to go on. It is. And much in keeping with uh, the theme of the movie, it's it's a lot of suffering, it's a lot of pain, but in the end, it's worth it. It's worth your time. Oh yeah, definitely. De- but that's it for this time on Syndicate. We hope you enjoyed yourself. We've been talking about The Children of Men by Alfonso Caron. Please check it out where it is available. And I'd like to take a moment to thank my guest Aaron for coming on the show. 
You can find Aaron on his podcast, WSTR Galactic Public Access. And if you'd like to keep the conversation going, please add us at Syndicate on your favorite social media platform. That's C-I-N-E-D-I-C-A-T-E. If you have any questions about the program or even the media that we recommend, please reach out at info at syndicate.com or visit the website syndicate.com. And until next time, stop that scroll and spend more time watching. Bye. Shutters on the